Hey folks, thanks for tuning in to this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. If you want to learn more about this project, you can go to the website lastborninthewilderness.com and there you will find everything that you would ever want to know about this project, every episode, every segment, every place that you can subscribe to this podcast on, as well as all the social media sites and on the website. And you'll find all these down in the description of this episode as well. But on the website, you'll find a link to the newsletter. It's a thing I'm doing. So for people that aren't at all interested or or don't really participate that much on social media, again, it's totally an understandable uh, thing. Uh, you can keep up to date with this project through the newsletter. All it requires is an email address, and that's it. It keeps you updated on new episodes and other developments with this project. Also, if you want to support this project, you can do so through the PayPal link, which is a one-time donation link. Uh, that is paypal.me slash lastbornpodcast. Go there, make a one-time donation, whatever size you feel is appropriate for this. Um, I just want to say that this project is ad-free, it is sponsor-free, it is uh, it is something that is a work of passion, it's something I, I work a great deal on, spend a lot of time uh, working on, so any contribution is greatly appreciated. Um, also, if you want to support this work more regularly, um, or if you want to really sustain this project, this work, uh, please consider doing so through the Patreon page. Go to patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness. And by going to that page, you can make whatever size donations monthly to this project. You can do as little as a dollar a month. And by doing that, you'll gain early access to these episodes, these interviews and conversations before the official public release. And you'll find other extras on that page as well. Um, I just want to thank everybody who supports this project. Everybody who has thrown any sort of money, any sort of support my way. Um, there's a lot of ways in which people have supported this project in non-monetary ways, of course, by listening, by sending your feedback. And, you know, another way that you can support this work uh, is by uh, sending me a message that I can include at the beginning of these episodes. That's a thing I've been trying for the past month or so. Uh, there's a phone number you can call, and it sends you straight to a voicemail message and you can leave a 30-second to 3-minute message that I can include at the beginning of this podcast. Uh, there have been people that have sent some really kind words, that have sent uh, various ideas and information that they wanted to share with everybody, um, and also some grievances, which of course is totally welcome. This is a project that I want to be completely tra- transparent. Anybody that has anything they want to say, I feel of course it is appropriate for this work, I will include it at the beginning and I will respond to it. Uh, that phone number is... 208-918-2837. It is 208-918-2837. So to those that have sent messages to me, thank you so much for those messages. And also you can just use that phone number to send any kind of thoughts or ideas or anything that you really want to send my way. Um, if you don't want it to be included in the podcast, uh, please state that uh, at some point during the message. And that'd be greatly appreciated. Also, if you just want to contact me via email or through the contact form on the website, you can just go to lastbornthewilderness.com and everything will be there. So uh, thank you all for listening to me ramble up to this point. Here's the episode. We are going to have our members come over top. At this point, I still consider to say uh, from you guys, you guys doing fairly peaceful. I hope it stays that way. You are trespassing! You're trespassing on what's sort of land! Hey! Look out! Hey! 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 Hey!
Title to their lands. We did not hurt anyone. The hereditary chiefs say no. In this episode, I speak with Will Falk. Will is a writer, he is a lawyer, and an environmental activist. And he is, as I mentioned, a, a lawyer, that means that he was a former public defender who now dedicates much of his time to environmental activism and using his uh, expertise as a lawyer. Um, in engaging with environmental activism. I should really contextualize what this discussion is and and what it's about. Uh, just this past Monday, uh, as of recording of this, uh, the Unistoten uh, camp up in so-called British Columbia, which is a part of the Wet'suwet'en People's Territory. It's a uh, First Nation, uh, an indigenous group of people who uh, have lived in this territory for countless generations, who have maintained and protected the land and the non-human life that exists on this land. Now, where this territory exists, um, it, first of all, I just need to mention that it is unceded territory. There has never been any treaty to give up any of these lands to the Canadian government. But regardless of that, the Canadian government has forcefully taken much of this land away from Indigenous peoples, uh, First Nations, in Canada, um, but this territory that the Wet'suwet'en people live on, again, has been unceded, and they have proven in court multiple times that this is their sovereign nation, this is their land, and that without consent by any government, particularly the Canadian government, uh, they're basically committing an act of war against the Wet'suwet'en people, the territory, by invading their land uh, for whatever purpose. Uh, this is a long-standing uh, trend, of course. We know that the United States of America, and Canada in particular, is a colonial project. It is a settler colonial state that's built on the lands of people that have lived on this land prior to their arrival. So these people that live in this territory have been fighting a very valiant fight to protect that land, to protect the river, to protect the place in which they live, the territory in which they are responsible in protecting. But for the past, I, I think what Will Falk here kind of goes over is I think for the past eight years or so, there has been a settlement, a camp called the Unistoten Camp, which is a particular clan within the Westuwetin people's territory, the nation of these people. And they have built a, a homestead in this particular area to do a few different things. And one of those things that it's doing, a major function that it's doing is to, of course, to revitalize and to bring up cultural traditions of these people, but also to uh, protect the land from uh, oil companies, from pipeline projects. You know, Canada is a, is a state that uh, relies a great deal on fossil fuel extraction. Uh, it, it has one of the largest tar sand projects in the world, uh, in Alberta, and it also fracks as well, as we do here in the United States. So these 
these fossil fuels that are being extracted um, and processed are being transferred through pipelines, obviously. Uh, one of the proposed pipelines is through their territory. It is by a corporation called Trans-Canada Corporation, and it is trying to build the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline. And it has been trying to do this for years. And just very recently, they have breached the border of the Unistetan people's barricades uh, that they have set up. Uh, they have breached that territory and have and have basically violated their own laws. Not that that really matters to a colonial state, of course, but for public relations purposes, they are violating their own laws that have been laid out by the Westawetan nation, their contention with with uh, the Canadian state's proposals and, and contracts with these, uh, uh, with these corporations. And Will, he is, as an environmental activist, very concerned um, with what is happening to these people. And back in 2014, 2015, he spent several weeks, uh, quite a bit of time, at the Unistetan uh, camp and helped build a few structures there and grew to love deeply love what these people are doing there and what they're protecting and what they're responsibly holding space for. Will is somebody who has a personal experience with with this place, but again, is not a spokesperson. He says this very explicitly, not a spokesperson for this camp. Uh, what is really important here is that there are many people from all over the world that are appalled by how the Canadian state has uh, violated the sovereignty and the borders of this indigenous nation. This is something, that, again, that's been going on for hundreds of years. It hasn't changed in any real way. Um, maybe the face of it is has been remade, uh, something like a facelift, I guess. So instead of just going in and slaughtering people like colonial states often have done, they're now just coming in and, and violating their sovereignty so they can build a fucking pipeline, right? And in a time of accelerating global crisis, of environmental crises, of ecological collapse, of abrupt climate disruption, these struggles fucking matter a lot. If we care at all about the future generations of this planet, not just human life, but non-human life as well, these struggles are where it's at. This is what we need to direct our attention towards in protecting these lands that have been untainted by colonial expansion, at least to a great degree. So I, I thank Will for his insights. Um, we have a wide-ranging discussion. You know, it starts off talking, of course, about the struggle, but it, it expands from there. And we talk a, a great deal about about how to expand our imaginations and how to approach these subjects. Um, so I really thank Will for doing this. I, I was again looking for somebody who had any sort of experience with the, this camp. And Will, uh, you know, aside from his work with his camp, is an amazing writer and poet. So I ask people to please check out his work, and you can do so at his website, willfalk.org, willfalk.org. Um, and also, if you want to support the Unistetan camp, you can do so at the website, unistotten.camp. That is U-N-I-S-T-O-T-E-N.camp. Go there, donate. Do whatever you can to help these people uh, get through these next several months, these next several years, as the Canadian government and their capitalist allies seek to pillage and violate this land more than they already have. We need to, again, direct our focus to these struggles. This is where it's at. So, um, Will, thank you for, for speaking with me. I really greatly appreciate this conversation, and I greatly enjoyed it. So hopefully in the, ne in the next few weeks, I'll have more interviews coming uh, regarding the struggle. I, I hope I can get something uh, going. We'll see how that pans out. I'm not 
necessarily banking on that happening, but I really hope I can secure an interview with some of these individuals that are representatives of this struggle. Uh, so again, thank you, Will. Uh, here's my interview with Will Falk. Okay, well, Will, thank you for doing this, man. Um, like I mentioned before we recorded, I was already looking at uh, possibly contacting you um, and uh, just all the stuff that's been going on with uh, the Unistotin camp up in, uh, you know, I love how people are saying now, uh, they've been saying it for a long time, but the so-called British Columbia, <laughs> so-called British Columbia, we need to kind of use that to sort of give it people an understanding that these people, they've been you know, a, a sovereign uh, nation, if we could even use that word to describe them. They've been there for a very long time. They've unseated territory to the Canadian government. So they they legally have a right to refuse anyone into their territory um, under, under Canadian law. Um, so it, it's important to kind of frame it in that way. But um, but yeah, well, I, I've been wanting to talk to you about uh, other things relating to your work, but because of what's been going on there, uh, you have had personal experiences of, of being in that camp. You you know those people. You uh, you you are obviously an environmental activist and a lawyer, so you have some legal understandings and some understandings of, of the environmental impacts that this uh, corporation that wants to build a pipeline through that territory, what the implications of that are environmentally. So very excited to have you on. So I just want to thank you, first of all, for taking the time to speak with me today. Yeah, I'm really, I'm really excited to, to talk about the Unistoten camp. And I'm really excited to be uh, on your show. I, I've listened to a few of your, of your interviews, and I really love what you're doing. So thank you very much for the invite. Oh, of course. Well, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, and I've spoken with your, uh, with your friend, Max Wilbert previously. Um, and I had a really good discussion with him. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know where to begin. I, I was thinking if we could first explore, uh, what is exactly happening. Um, I think it's important also to get, cause this is something I, I I'm ignorant of, and I had to kind of research, um, had kind of a cursory understanding of, of the Unistotin camp, the Unistotin clan, and how that is in fact a part of the, uh, Wet'suwet'en people. Uh, and the territory of these people. So if you could explain uh, maybe some of the terms uh, so that people like myself, <laughs> you know, who, who of course is, is a part of, you know, the United States uh, who maybe doesn't quite have, have a really good grasp on indigenous cultures, indigenous societies um, on this continent. If you could maybe give us a bit of a background of these people and their, and their struggle, that would be great. Yeah, um, I think the the very first thing that I I just want to make sure is clear, and um, I I am not um, an indigenous person. I'm I'm a settler. Uh, I I grew up in the United States, um, right. and so I I also want to make make clear that I I I am not a spokesperson for the Wet'suwet'en people, um, and and I I cannot serve as a spokesperson uh, for the camp. I can. I can give uh, the, the background that that you're talking about, mm -hmm. and I can certainly talk to uh, my personal experiences at the Unistoten camp, which um, I, I will always consider some of the very best times of my life. Um, but just just getting that out of the way, I yeah uh, I can yeah I can I can go into a little bit of the background. Um, the the first thing to know about the the Unistoten camp is it is an indigenous cultural center 
uh, in uh, north central uh, British Columbia, so-called British Columbia, that uh, sits on uh, the proposed routes of seven uh, fossil fuel pipelines. Uh, the much of the fossil fuel development that's happening in Canada is uh, happening in the Alberta area, uh, which is the ne- the first province to the east of British Columbia. Uh, Alberta is where the the notorious and and horrible Fort McMurray tar sands are. Um, the the actual pipeline that is at issue right now is called the Coastal Gas Link. And it is not actually taking uh, fossil fuels from the Fort McMurray area, but it's taking uh, it would it would take fossil fuels from um, a region uh, on the far east side of British Columbia, uh, and it would take fracked natural gas um, across the province to the west to a big um, liquid natural gas processing uh, facility uh, in Kitimat, British Columbia. Uh, and from that that processing facility, it would be shipped uh, to mainly Asian markets. Um, that's uh, that's really important because uh, several of the big um, several of the big investors in in the uh, Coastal Gas Lake pipeline are companies like Royal Dutch Shell and Mitsubishi. Um, but there's also uh, public investors. The Malaysian government is involved. Uh, PetroChina is involved. The South Korean government is involved. Um, so uh, I, I just wanted to bring that part up or talk about that for a second. Yeah, because of course. It, um, because it, it shows you how, um, how global uh, the, the colonization of this land would be. It's, it's, this is a classic colonial uh, occurrence where uh, major governments halfway around the world extract resources from um, indigenous lands uh, from from native peoples and then and then use those resources again uh, very very far away from um, from where they originated. Uh, so so the Unisotan camp again uh, um, sits on on the proposed route of this pipeline. Um, there have been six other proposed pipelines. Uh, that wanted to use this route that would have taken them um, uh, through the Unistoten camp. Um, but as as far as I understand right now, those six pipelines have all um, have everyone's bailed on those. The um, whether it's investors um, um, pulling out of those pipelines or whether it's it's actually the very real uh, resistance that um, the Unistoten camp represents is, is scaring these pipelines away. But so far, six out of the seven proposed ones are are not happening, and uh, this this seventh one, um, the Coastal Gas Link has been has been the most um, forceful about uh, actually building their pipeline. So, uh, the Unisotan camp uh, sits on uh, traditional unceded territories of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation. Um, it's really it's really important, I think, for an American audience, especially, to understand what unceded territory means. So, something like eighty percent of the entire uh, British Columbian province um, is actually unceded uh, indigenous territories, meaning the the 
British government, the British colonial uh, forces that arrived in British Columbia about 150 years ago uh, never actually got treaties or got permissions to be there. Um, they, the, basically, the um, many First Nations in, in British Columbia never gave up uh, sovereignty. They never acknowledged that there was another government, there was a bigger government than them in the area. Uh, of course, that's, you know, I think that many Native people in the United States might say um, who did sign treaties, well, we were forced into those treaties, they're illegitimate. Um, and that's that's certainly true. But um, what's interesting about British Columbia is they there never were, for 80% of the territory, there's just not treaties at all. Um, in this, when, when territory is unceded, uh, that's important for... Um, this whole body of international law uh, that that the United Nations um, specifically has been developing. And uh, there is a um, sort of a, an articulation of international law called the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And as part of that, um, part of that declaration uh, talks about how uh, unceded territories are still sovereign territories, just like um, the Canadian government considers itself a, a sovereign government and the United States government uh, considers itself a sovereign government. If if Canada um, invaded or, or tried to come into the United States and started taking our resources, that would be, that would be very clearly an act of war. So for the Wet'suwet'en people who, who never gave up their sovereignty, um, under international law, even, um, the Canadian government coming onto their territory and trying to take resources uh, is, in fact, viewed as an act of war. Um, yeah, so, that's really good to get that understanding. I just want to make that clear that that is an act of war. Sorry, I just wanted to make that clear. Yeah, Yeah. no, and it's... Um, yeah, and I, I always try to make that clear for an American audience um, because uh, there there is so much of of the the land that is that is called Canada um, that is actually this unceded territory. Um, so uh, the Unistoten camp um, really got started about about eight years ago, and it it it, it got started as both a um, a reoccupation of these traditional territories, uh, and with an awareness that there there might be pipelines coming through, uh, and it's important under Canadian law, and um, it's important under Canadian law that um, Indigenous peoples show that they they are living on their land, that they're that they are deriving some benefit from it. Uh, so. Part of the, the idea behind the Unistoten camp was to was to reinvigorate these cultural traditions and to to really show the world that uh, the Wet'suwet'en people are are still here. Um, the Unistoten clan of the Wet'suwet'en people are uh, taking responsibility for their land and and they're going to live there on traditional way live there with with their traditional culture and with their traditional practice. So over the years, the Unistoten camp has evolved to um, include uh, traditional uh, pit house 
um, which was the traditional living structure of the Wet'suwet'en people. Um, that was built in traditional ways, and that's at the camp. There is uh, a really um, a really cool permaculture garden, uh, and and I know that. Uh, you know, you say cool permaculture, that's a hip thing to say now, but, um, it really is when I say it's cool, it, they, they had, they've invited a lot of different, um, permaculturists and different view, different people with different permaculture skills and have, um, my experience of the permaculture garden was, it was, it was really this place where, um, these permaculture designers really had a, a, something to work from scratch and uh, they've built up this, this um, just really cool permaculture garden. <laughs> um, they've, they've also uh, one of the, um, one of the, the Unistoten family members is, is a, is a medical doctor. I think she specializes in um, psychology and um, especially substance abuse um recovery. So one of the, one of the major structures that was built at the Unistoten camp is a, uh, traditional healing center. And at that traditional healing center, um, this, this, uh, her name's Dr. Carla Tate. Uh, she just gave, she just gave a, a great interview to democracy now, um, that you can find on, on YouTube. I think if you just, uh, uh, Googled her name, K A R. L A T A I T um, that that you'll find you'll find her interview, but she um, she she always had this idea of of um, kind of combining uh, traditional Wet'suwet'en medicine uh, with um, modern psychological uh, education to create a, a specifically Unistoten healing center. And that that is there on on the on the land of the Unistoten camp, and there are um, indigenous people there that are 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 healing, that are going through um, different healing practices, um, and uh, it's 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 just a really powerful uh, a really powerful place that that structure in particular. Um, and I, and it's also in terms of, and I guess I can get into this later, but in terms of, um, we're, we're always talking about how, uh, you know, we need to, culture needs to change. Society needs to change. Humans in some way have to reinvent themselves. And I think that something like the Unistoten healing center, um, and the whole Unistoten camp, in fact, uh, proves that um, there are traditions that have existed for thousands of years that we don't really need to reinvent ourselves. We just need to relearn our traditional ways and implement those in maybe in new ways. Um, but those traditions are there, and uh, at the at the healing center on the Unistoten camp, um, they they're really they're really demonstrating that that what humans can do if they. Uh, remain strong in, in their traditions, and if they they keep passing those traditions down from generation to generation, um, there's also a, a a big bunkhouse that was built um, on on the camp lands, um, and that bunkhouse is near and dear to my heart because I helped to build it in um, 2014. 
Um, and I, if you know me, I know absolutely nothing about um, construction or how to use tools. I'm a writer and a lawyer. And I had several, um, you know, both my thumbnails, I think at one point were falling off because I, I missed the nails and hit my <laughs> thumbnail with the hammers. Yeah. Um, but um, these, these buildings, most of these buildings were built with, all with, with volunteers that came up to the camp. Um, they, there, would, there would usually be um, – there, there would be a, a call out once or twice a year for volunteers to come up to the camp over the years to, uh, to help construct the healing center, for example, or that bunkhouse or to work on the permaculture garden. And it, it was this, when I was up there, it was this really powerful, this really powerful um, thing to witness where, where you see all these people who have very different skills and they all, they're all up at the camp because they, they want to help and they want to, they want to stop pipelines. Um, but it's really interesting to see what a group of people can do, um, combining their skills and what, what people can do, uh, when they never thought they had any skills in the first place. Um, so that's, that's, that's what the camp is. That's, that is what, um, you know, when, when we're talking about, um, when we're talking about building pipelines, uh, through the Unistoten camp, that that is the human side of what's there. Uh, but there is also a, a a very powerful, and in fact, um, the most important thing I think about the camp is this this non-human element that's there. So the Unistoten camp sits on the banks of um, what's called uh, in English the the Morris River. Uh, and it's what in in the Wet'suwet'en language they call it the Wet'suwet'en Kwa, but it is a um, still pristine river, meaning you can dip your water bottle into it and drink water right out of the river. It's one of the few places left in in North America that you can do that. It's one of the few places left in the world really that you can do that. Um, the the Morris River is also. Um, a, a very active salmon estuary. Uh, so salmon run up the river um, and are uh, caught by um, different First Nations people. Uh, this is this is a traditional practice that really goes back time immemorial. And for so many people in um, the the Northwest of Canada and in the Pacific Northwest of the United States, salmon are really uh, a sacred being um you know you talk about bison for for the plains people uh you, you know you talk about salmon for people of the pacific northwest um <clears throat> so uh that is the kind of place that these pipelines would destroy if if a pipeline um they would have to i'm not sure how they would navigate the river whether the pipeline would be built under it or built over it um, I guess in a lot of ways it doesn't really matter. Pipelines, as we know, uh, sooner or later always breach. Um, and so in, in a lot of ways uh, to build a pipeline um, around pr a pristine water source, uh, you're, you're, you're spelling disaster for that water source, whether it's, uh, you know, three or four months after they start construction, as we saw with, uh, with the Keystone XL 
um, or whether it's 25 years down the road, um, mm-hmm. there's going to be something bad happen. Yeah. Well, that, that reminds me of, um, uh, remember the name of the, uh, I guess it was the Keystone pipeline, but the, um, uh, with standing rock, right. Was it that 2016? I can't remember exactly when that was. It was a few years ago, uh, when that, that really happened. And I remember whatever the corporation was that was in charge of building that pipeline that wanted to build through that, that, uh, area, uh, their whole thing was like, our safety record is good enough. Like, you know, occasionally we have spills, but it's fine. We manage them well. And then you actually look at the real data that's not from them. And you realize it happens much more frequently than than they will even admit. And that's what's so, like, disturbing about it is is how damaging every pipeline is. I mean, just the fact that you're building something like that is already disruptive. And then the fact that it's, you know, you have basically a toxic... Uh, liquid, a toxic substance that's being transferred through that. And inevitably, at some point, it may be a, you know, who knows what time frame we're looking at, but over time, that's going to leak. There's going to be something that's going to happen. And you're talking about a very fragile um, ecosystem. You're talking about a, a place that these people have, you know, created space for, basically, or allowed for it to thrive and exist as a pristine environment for salmon to, to thrive and exist in and other of other non-human beings as well to exist and thrive in as well. And you realize how absolutely sacred that work is and how the interests of a pipeline or the state of Canada really does not even come close to to the value that these people and this territory is providing for everybody, really. I think that's what people don't seem to understand is this sort of disconnection that we tend to have from the land and from these non-human beings that are, they have every right to exist. And yet we place, you know, our, our right to have certain kinds of resources above everything else. And it's, it's just absolutely insane. Um, It's an insane culture that produces this kind of mindset. I just wanted to comment on that, but yeah. Yeah, I think, I think you're totally right. And I, I, there, there. You, you said something that I think is really important. You, you said it there. Something along the lines. I can't remember your exact words, but the Unistoten camp are is doing something for everyone. Um, and I think there's there's so many there's so many layers to that. The the first and and maybe most obvious one is in in, in a uh, in a time when. Uh, we know that the combustion of fossil fuels is is pushing uh, the planet literally to um, to a place where where life may not be able to to go on, where life support systems are are the collapse of these life support systems are intensifying daily. Um, you know that anytime someone anyone anytime someone can prevent one of these big projects from happening, they're doing something for the whole world. But then there's another there's another aspect to what they what they what they've done at the Unistone camp, and that is that um, the one of the one of the big things that they always emphasized at the camp was that it, going to the going to the Unistone camp was was really an educational experience for people who went up there, especially for um, I think especially for people who have lost connection to their land because you go to go up to the Unistone camp and to, to, um, to experience what life was like before, 
um, before we we started burning fossil fuels, what life was like before you you know you woke up and reached to reach for your phone next to your bed or before you um, dreaded, you know, getting your coffee and going in to answer emails. Um, what what life was really like um, for for most all humans for the vast majority of, of human history. And, um, you know, to, to going to the Unistoten camp, um, you, you go there usually, at least the way I went there, uh, was for different call out for calls out for volunteers. And, um, you know, you, you, you sleep before the bunkhouse was built. Uh, we slept in tents, um, out in the woods, basically. Um, you, you wake up every morning to the sounds of a, of a, of a, relatively healthy forest all around you. Uh, you know, the, one of the first things you have to do when you wake up in the morning is someone has to, um, take these big, uh, um, you know, 15 gallon containers down to the river to fill them up because the first thing you need in the morning for everything is water. Someone has to, has to get the fire going to, to, so people can start to make breakfast. Um, and you, you start to get into this very, I I think a very natural rhythm of, of the way that um, humans have always lived, and there's something happened to me when I was up there. I I I really felt it's one of the most peaceful times I've ever had, um, despite some of those days working twelve and fourteen hour days of manual labor. Um, to just to just to wake up in the morning in a in a forest uh, to to just take care of really your very very um, basic human needs water and food and then to go to work not um, not for someone else to make some profit for someone else and you not answering the the work bell or not uh, you know not uh, going to work um, because you're forced to because you have to support yourself but going going to work for a community um, that is doing the right thing and that uh, is truly a community um, it, it it felt like I felt like I had fallen into place like that's that's what you know this is what humans are supposed to do and um, it it was an incredibly powerful experience so not only was the, is the Unistoten camp blocking pipelines, they're teaching people how humans are supposed to live. And, um, you know, I don't know, the, you know, indigenous peoples around the world are um, obviously, you know, they, they're, they're being eradicated. And slowly but surely, we're losing, um, we're losing our memories of, of our traditions, you know, for, for me as a, as a white American of, um, Irish and German ancestry, um, I, I just went to Ireland for the first time a, uh, a year ago. And while they do remember a lot of their traditions, um, from uh, the last thousand years or so after they became civilized, we just don't, we just don't know how, how we lived, um, before civilization happened. And when we lose examples like that, how are we ever going to remember? How are we, um, you know, it, it, you don't even know. Once once you lose your memory of something, you don't even know that it's gone. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, there's so much 
so you know you, you went you went to Ireland and, and I went to Ireland last year in February for the first time and I went to uh went to Scotland as well and and like you said yes there is this recognition of their heritage you know one thing I noticed that was fascinating is getting onto their trains uh they have the original I guess would be Gaelic uh language uh they would say that version of it the stop first so whatever town you're going to they would say that first and then they would say the English version of that um, and the same thing was in Scotland as well. There was this recognition that, oh, we have we have a first language and English comes second, even though I rarely came across anyone that spoke that original language. There was one time I remember on the train where I heard a family speaking in a tongue that was so peculiar because it was so outside of what you would normally hear. And it was inc- immediately very fascinating. But like also I realized like, oh, this is rare. You know, this is something that has probably been revitalized on you know people purposefully brought that back so that they can kind of bring back some of that um, cultural heritage and memory that they had mainly lost for however many hundreds of years um, due to colonialism but but something that I think is interesting and and I've talked about this idea of whiteness um, and I think it's important to comment on this because we're both you know settlers in the United States you know we are two what would be defined as white men commenting on this. And I think it's important to note that oftentimes white people are attracted to indigenous traditions and cultures without having any recognition. And I'm not saying this about you or myself, but I'm saying that there are many white people who appropriate other people's cultures and and decontextualize where they come from because there is something spiritually hollow in whiteness. There's something that implicit in being white is this hollowness, this this rootlessness that, you know, comes from the fact that we probably our ancestors came here however many hundred or whatever years ago um, and settled here and sort of cut their ties with their homeland, um, which wherever they're from, right? Like my family is Welsh and English and Danish, and I have no family traditions that connect me to that. Um, and that was very much on purpose, I think, for the most part, um, but also imposed through um, assimilation. And for the fact that there are these still these these pockets of indigenous communities around the North America continent and around the world um, that are still upholding these traditions in the face of enormous pressure from whether it's the Canadian government or or capitalist interests or a combination of these things is incredibly empowering, but also very frightening. Because I think anybody, it doesn't matter whether you identify as white or whatever you are, you can sense that there's something sacred in that, in that work. And if you can tap into that, you can then learn to recognize, well, what happened to us? You know, what happened to, why is it that we lack that in our own lives? Um, and like you mentioned, when you went and visited that camp, it was like something, it was almost like a memory that you didn't know you had, you know, it wasn't your memory necessarily of, of being a part of that culture, but it was a recognition that we lost something too in this process of becoming modern or civilized, using quotations around those words. Um, I just think that's incredibly fascinating to hear you talk about that. Yeah, that's just my, my two cents on that that whole subject. Yeah, yeah I, I, I mean, I, I firmly believe that our I firmly believe that our bodies can still remember um, and that our, our bodies have a different way of remembering than, than our minds do. 
And I think, I mean, I think one, I think that my experiences at the camp um, are really foundational to my understanding of that. And, and I think that, you know, it's not when, when, when I was at the Unistoten camp, it wasn't that I could somehow hear these whispers of, of what, um, what Irish life was like before, before civilization or what my ancestors did, uh, when they were still, um, when they still remembered their, their traditional ways of living. It was more, I think, a lot of it was was physical things it was things like like i said waking up to the sound of a forest um drinking water that you can see pool in your own hands um it was uh, the fact that uh the meals at the unistoten camp um are are were very big deals where um every meal had had people assigned to to it, so so everybody would sign up or volunteer for um, a breakfast, lunch, or dinner, and um, it, w- it was a very communal activity. There would be if there was if there was forty people at the camp, you, you know, you needed eight or ten people really um, working on the meal. But then also the food that you that that we were eating, a lot of it was was wild food. I mean, we ate we ate moose at the camp. We ate salmon regularly. We ate um, bear at the camp. Um, and uh, you, when your when your body is being nourished again in the way that it was supposed to, you know, we we um, humans didn't evolve to to eat, um, you know, to wake up and have a bagel with. Um, you know, what pretend butter on it, you know, um, we, we, our bodies, our bodies evolved to need meat and to need wild meat. Um, and so part of, part of that remembering was also just this, this, uh, feeling of, wow, this is what my body can feel like when it gets the nutrients that it's supposed to get, Um, there was also, you know, there's, there's a very, there was a very strong spiritual aspect to the meals. There was always a, uh, prayer before, um, meals. And there, there was always, um, there was always an offering made of the food to, to with Suetan ancestors, which usually meant just taking a little of each dish and, um, placing it somewhere uh, somewhere away from where we were eating as an offering to the, to the ancestors. But, um, I, I grew up, uh, pretty strictly Catholic. My parents are, my family is really, um, devoutly Catholic. So, uh, a prayer at meal was nothing new to me. Um, but while I really lost my faith in Catholicism, Um, and typically I would kind of, uh, cringe at a prayer before a meal. Um, a prayer at the camp really made sense. Um, you were thanking, you were thanking the moose that gave, that gave her life so you could eat. You were thanking the salmon that gave their life for you to eat. You were thanking the plants. Um, and it was all, again, it, 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 that process of remembering, it was like, um, it's just, I think it was that feeling of, of belonging to a community 
Um, and, and that while my mind maybe can't, couldn't reconstruct all those memories, my body, um, certainly was felt like it was coming into its place. And, um, that's, that's how memory works, um, in those ways, I think. Yeah. Well, the way you talk about the prayer that just reminded me, I grew up, I know that you live in Utah. I know that you live in Heber city, if I remember correctly. Um, yeah. and in my family, my parents are from Utah. They, I grew up Mormon, right? So I, I grew up with the same kind of sort of religious background of praying over a meal. And then, you know, you know, and now I, I feel the same way whenever I hear a prayer over a meal, I cringe a bit, but, the, but I think the, the major, major difference is what you're acknowledging or thanking in that prayer. I remember as a kid, it was like, you're thanking God, you're thanking this sort of this ethereal being that's above everything and it's because of his you know uh, graciousness or whatever that you're getting this meal but you know what what you're saying with this prayer is like it's more of an animistic uh there's more of an animistic quality which is to say that you're thanking the very beings that you're eating you know you're thanking the the actual place that you're in for providing this food for you that's that 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 grounds you that connects you to the place that you're in and that has a completely different quality to it than thinking some you know heavenly father or something you know um i think that's that's worth noting um but yeah you know that this conversation i think has taken an interesting turn because i think it is good to comment on on how fighting for these places um is really about trying to also reconnect with something that's been lost by acknowledging that there are people who haven't lost this, that are actually revitalizing something that's been with them for countless generations. And that is so valuable and so important. And so I think what's really disturbing about watching, because there's been, you know, videos and, you know, when this whole thing broke out with uh, the uh, RCMP, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, breaching that barrier, um, you know, they didn't come in and shoot anybody. There wasn't this, like, obvious violence that we would see maybe a hundred years ago or whenever, maybe not even that long ago between, uh, say a nation like Canada and an indigenous nation. Um, but there was this sort of feeling of violation that I think many, many people felt because their people are saying, no, you know, I do not, we do not give you permission to enter our territory. And they violated that, you know, not only in a legalistic sense, were they breaking their own laws, but there's just this feeling of violation that comes from when somebody, you know, goes past a border that was not meant to be breached. Um, and I think a lot of people, again, because we're so conscious now, are becoming much more conscious of, of say, climate change or these kind of global issues, we need to kind of refocus our understanding that if there's any work that's going to be done regarding these major global trends, it's on these on the local level. And protecting these territories, these places that have been pretty much untainted by, uh, for the most part, by outside forces, by uh, by the uh, colonial projects that have, um, you know, been expanding for the past hundred, however many hundreds of years. It reminds me of like what's going on in Brazil a little bit right now. There's, you know, a, a kind of neo-fascist that was elected into power, and there's a great amount of fear for good reason that much of the indigenous peoples territories and rights are whatever little they had already is 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 now been torn to shreds um this is a worldwide trend and so by fighting 
that fight on the local level, we're actually engaging in a global struggle. It's kind of an interesting um, point that I guess I wanted to make about that. But yeah. Yeah. Hey, one of my first, one of my first reactions to what you said is, is just that everywhere uh, is the Unisotan camp. Um, And I don't, I don't mean that to devalue the the Unistoten camp and the very um, the very specific personality that the land and the people have there that is that is their own and that cannot be uh, found anywhere else. Um, but what I what I do mean is the the history of human civilization is is the history of violating places like the Unistoten camp. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here, uh, like you said, I'm in Heber City, Utah, and uh, about 100 yards south of where I'm sitting is this monument that the city has constructed. Um, and it's a monument to, uh, quote unquote, a treaty uh, be- between the the. Uh, indigenous peoples of this area, uh, which which were part of the Greater Ute Nation, um, they, they and the story on the monument even 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 tells you what's going on. But um, there's also this this old uh, this old Mormon homestead, and the the monument is celebrating a treaty where the Ute people who were starving because they're um, the elk and uh, uh, the other game that they um, relied on in the area uh, were were basically pushed to local extinction by um, European cattle that was brought in. Um, and so the, those people started taking the cows because they were starving and um, the, the local settlers um, viewed this as an act of war, an act of aggression. So, um, <laughs> so they, so the, they threatened indigenous people, indigenous people that came in, um, signed a treaty or made an agreement, um, not to take the cows if they would receive so many cows, um, so that they could feed their people. So it's this, what I'm getting at is, um, settler colonialism spreading across across the world uh, forces it, it destroys everything until um, it forces indigenous people to um, to capitulate to what's going on um, and and the land everywhere is destroyed um, so places like the Unistoten camp that um, you know is is relatively distant from the major centers of civilization the major cities it has persisted uh for this long um which is amazing and which is great um but so many places between between civilization and the Unistoten camp have been destroyed uh so the global nature that you're talking about is it i think is reflected in in the fact that what's happened to the Unistoten camp has happened so many other times around the world um, and, and will continue to happen as long as there as there are resources to to take or as as long as there um, are things that that indigenous people um, hold sacred that that civilization wants and and will take mm-hmm. yeah absolutely 
Mm. Um, well, when you said you visited that camp, uh, was it 2014 or 2015? Yeah, I went. Um, so I left uh, for the first time I left for the camp was in uh, late April of 2014. Um, and then I uh, after spending a couple weeks there in the spring of 2014 and, and completely falling in love with the place, I decided to stay uh, in Canada. I actually stayed down in Victoria um, where I was helping with um, different support work for the camp, fundraising, um, giving people rides. But I, I stayed in Canada through the spring of 2015 Um and over the course of that year, I, I think I've, I visited the camp two or three more times. Um, um, so yeah, it's been, it has been, uh, four years since I was last at the camp. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. um, but I spent most of my time there in 2014 and 2015. Okay. So you had, so you, I just wanted to just ask because you had been there for, quite a while um and the the thing is 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 there is a there's a protocol that they have for people to enter the camp it's you know it's not like this like hyper militarized you know zone where like nobody can enter i mean they're willing to let people in if you respect their values you respect their territory you respect their their laws um and the reason why of course they wouldn't let the canadian police or um you know, this, this pipeline in is because they were violating those laws. They were going to violate their, uh, their sovereignty. So it, it's just, it's worth noting that, you know, if you come peacefully, if you come with the right intention and you apparently have a relationship with the, the, her, the, I'm trying to say this correctly, the hereditary council or the, the elders of that, uh, territory, um, if you do that correctly, it's really not a big deal you know, um, and and I think that's worth noting, I think, that they're very, seemingly very open and welcome to letting people in as long as they're very respectful of what they're doing there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. And um, yeah, what, what you're talking about, they call the free prior and informed consent protocol. And that is language that is specifically taken out of that um, United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples um, that I mentioned earlier. Um, so it, the, that, um, that document uh, says that um, if that, that sort of settler nations, when dealing with um, indigenous nations, if, they're, if they want to do something on indigenous land, they have to gain that free prior and informed consent um, in order for, for the global community to view their actions as um, legitimate. But it, there's also, so that comes from kind of the, the Western uh, legal tradition that the United Nations um, declarations of rights of indigenous peoples represents, but there's also, um, in, uh, in Wet'suwet'en law, the way I understand it, um, that, uh, you always needed to get free prior and informed consent before, um, entering an, another, uh, another territory or another family groups or another nation's territory. Um, and, and the process now, uh, the process now for the free prior and informed consent protocol 
um, before the police became <laughs> very violent. What it involved was before um, crossing the boundary into uh, Unistoten territory, uh, the Unistoten camp, um, the Unistoten uh, elders, the people responsible for that land, would meet you at the boundary and they would ask you a series of questions about who you are, where you came from, what kind of um, skills you have, and why you wanted to access that land. Um, and then they would, you know, if your if your answers satisfied them, then they would they would let you on. And there were examples where your answers didn't satisfy them, and they wouldn't let you access the territory. But what that's really rooted in is is um, traditional teachings about the re- responsibilities to the land. If if you have a responsibility to protect the land then you have a responsibility to set up boundaries. I mean, using that word in both, you know, the modern, um, you know, we all need to have boundaries sense, but also, um, and it's something that I I don't think that we think about very often. Um, If you have a responsibility to land, that means you also have a responsibility to forcibly protect it if if you perceive threats to that land. Um, So that that free prior and informed consent protocol is really about um, uh, Wet'suwet'en elders um, um, practicing their responsibility to the land and um, not just letting anybody on, not just letting anything happen, um, but really taking um, a stern look at who's going to come onto your land and and deciding that the the people that you're letting on are not a threat to, to your land. Um, and so I don't know, I, I, sometimes I feel like in, in the environmental movement, um, or in the left in general, there's this kind of weird, um, anarchist strand that, uh, you know, it makes it think like everybody was just happy and friendly to each other all the time. And that that's the world that, that we're going to. Um, but I think, uh, in reality, um, human beings have always practiced um, forcible protection of their lands, force, forcible and responsible. Um, they, they put responsible practices in to make sure that um, land was never threatened. Right. Yeah, there has to be this um, recognition that there there has to be this, this that mentality of, of like the land is so very important that we have to respect that and we have to acknowledge i i've been thinking and this is totally a selfish and self very like me thing but doing this podcast i've been thinking a lot about how there are a lot of opportunistic people i I imagine it's a product of our culture but it's also just something that has probably existed for a long time um, regardless of whatever cultural tradition you come from you have to be wary and you have to be not naive <laughs> that there are people that are that don't have the best intentions and they have agendas. Um, and and it, personally, just in my work, I've seen this, but I could imagine in a longer, uh, much more, uh, you know, in, in the sense regarding this particular subject, um, these people have to be very. They cannot be naive, and they 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 aren't. They are not naive about what this territory means to them, um, what value it, it has, and, and that in order to maintain its, uh, its health, uh, there has to be this boundary that has to be set up. 
Um, and like you said, you know, I, I identify as an anarchist, but I also have this recognition that, you know, there, there's, there's a, there's a time for these types of things. There's a definitely a reason why we have boundaries in place. And that is very much a part of the equation when we talk about, um, building a more beautiful world, I guess you could say, if we were going to inhabit this world more beautifully, we have to acknowledge that, um, there isn't just like this free flowing, you know, nobody gives a shit about what we do to each other. No, that's not how it works. <laughs> that's not, that's not it at all. That, that completely is the opposite of what I think we need to acknowledge, which is that we need to respect people's boundaries. We need to respect the land's boundaries, um, on its own terms. Yeah. Yeah. There, you know, there, there does have to be, um, I think that there's, there's a difference between the over, uh, moral, the, um, you know, if you think of the faith traditions that you and I grew up in and, um, seemingly are seemingly arbitrary rules, um, you know, um, you know, in Catholicism, for example, like, well, why can't you eat meat on Friday? That kind of mm-hmm. weird, arbitrary, like over moralistic, rules. I think sometimes a lot of people, especially um, a lot of, of of white people who come from those um, faith traditions, we the temptation is to is to respond with, well, because some rules are bad, all rules are bad. Um, and I think that that uh, what what the free prior and informed consent protocol represents is no, there, there are rules. We really do need to have rules because like you said, there is some, some amount of humanity that, um, is, uh, does feel entitled to destroy. Um, there's also a a certain amount of humanity that is just ignorant about their destruction. They don't, they don't understand a place which, which, um, you know, is another reason to have, to have, uh, this protocol in place because if if you've never been um, on Wet'suwet'en land, then you might not understand how how Wet'suwet'en land uh, works. What you know, you might not know that the Morris River is a pristine river, and so if you're used to to other rivers, then you know that you might not be so careful about what you do with the river if 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 you don't know that. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think, um, I think, I think too, that this, the, the, the culture that we live in, um, the dominant culture today really encourages us to, to be entitled and really encourages us to, um, be selfish and to aggressively take what we want. And as that, that impulse within a culture grows stronger, then I think that that means that boundaries, um, boundaries have to become, um, stronger, have to become more rigid in some, some senses. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, we have to fight for what's left, you know, we have to fight for these places that still exist. And, and not only that, it's not just protecting what's already, you know, basically like, like the, the Wet'suwet'en, uh, people's land, uh, Wesley Wetton, I'm going to say their name correctly. I, I, I feel like such a, a, a white person. <laughs> I apologize if I am, am imper- I'm not pronouncing these words correctly. Um, 
but uh, you know, they're protecting a land that's been protected for a long time. But I think it's also worth saying that, you know, there's a lot of places that have been violated. There's a lot of rivers, most rivers that have been tainted, that have been polluted. You know, we shouldn't abandon those places. I think we can learn um, from places that have been protected um, and how they treat that land. And that's how all land should be treated. This isn't just like, you know, just protect this one spot and we'll be fine. No, this is a matter of taking those lessons and applying them to places that have been violated that have been, um, had their boundaries, uh, violated and crossed. Um, and, you know, actually I want to tie this into something. Um, just the last thing I want to get to here, uh, before we go, uh, so I, I didn't have enough time to really delve into this subject, but, you know, you, you've worked with, uh, legally defining the rights of, of, of nature, uh, from what I can understand. So, uh, the Colorado river, Am I right in saying that that is something that a project that you've worked on for the past several years to give it some sort of legal rights to to have you know to be to be protected? Um, could you talk a little bit about that? I would like to hear more about that. Yeah, yeah, and and that work in many ways was really informed by by my experiences at the Unistoten camp and in and in other. Um, other indigenous communities. Um, I spent some time on, on Mauna Kea in Hawaii too. Um, but yeah, I, uh, in the fall of 2017, I helped to file, uh, the first ever American, uh, federal lawsuit seeking rights for a major ecosystem. And that was the Colorado river. Um, it, the lawsuit, um, yeah, the rights of nature is is a is a growing. Um, I don't want to call it a movement yet. I think that might be premature. It's this, it's a it's a growing idea um, that um, within within the Western legal system, uh, those who have rights have have a privilege and a power, and those who do not have rights. Um, are always violated. I think um, the easiest example of this is African slavery in the United States. Uh, it, um, when African slaves were defined as property and they had they had no rights, um, so they were consumed and destroyed. Now, uh, you know, and for for since the beginning, the dawn of civilization, uh, nature has been viewed as property. It has no rights um, and is consumed and destroyed. So the idea with with rights of nature is to um, to give nature um, a privilege to to be able to uh, go into court and ask a judge um, to protect nature's rights. Um, there is, I'm not, I'm not always, I'm, I'm often uneasy about rights in general because, because they are a Western construct. Um, and I think that that is, that is something that, um, that's something that, that the Unistoten camp really, um, really emphasizes that their work is is not about rights it's about responsibilities they don't have a right to um to a healthy land base they have a responsibility to ensure that the land base remains healthy um and the way 
the way I've kind of reconciled that is um, while this this Western legal system dominates the continent, um, can we create weapons within that that system um, to to give us more tools to protect uh, ecosystems like the Colorado River? Um, I but I think the most the most important thing about um, the right the lawsuit with the Colorado River is the way that it in filing the lawsuit we created this conversation about how how law actually works um, in, in the Western world and um, what I mean by that is law is really uh, how power organizes itself and um, the practice of law is nothing more than asking um, a judge to um, order uh, someone to do something and with the, 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 the full violence of the state behind, behind the judge's decision. So we can easily understand this when we talk about, um, you know, the, the, the person convicted of murder, you, you, you go through, a whole trial where a jury finds a person um, guilty of murder, and then the the judge can order the police to throw that person in prison. Um, and we understand this too with what's happening with with Unistoten Camp. The judge, a judge, ordered an injunction against um, the Unistoten Camp, and that injunction gave the RCMP the power to go in and forcibly remove people or forcibly ensure that. Um, the pipeline construction company could um, could access that territory. Um, well, the, the the reason that um, that the judge could make that decision and order the police to do that is that under um, Western law, the corporations involved in that have the right um, to make sure that their their uh, projects are are carried out. Um, so the idea with with rights of nature is to um, give give uh, the natural world that same power. Um, so if if the Colorado River had um, rights of nature and um, you know there was uh, some pollution or something or a dam that was violating the Colorado River's rights, we we could go into court and ask a judge to order the police to enforce the river's rights uh, against against that against the destruction um, that it's experiencing. Um, and but I always I always want to make the point that uh, law I'm a lawyer and I don't think that law I don't think that the answers to our solutions are going to come through law. Um, I think that uh, you, Change happens very slowly through the law, if at all, if it's not co-opted before it ever has has a chance to really breathe. But um, this, you know, if we take a step back and look at what we're trying to do with the Colorado River, um, which is uh, get a recognition that the Colorado River has a right to exist, um, regenerate, naturally evolve. Uh, and then with those rights, get an order to, to remove a dam or something. Um, 
that that's the end goal is to help the Colorado River regenerate by removing destructive practices um, that are happening to the Colorado River. And and the tactic that we're using to get there is is by convincing the legal system to do that. But I think what's more important for people to understand is you don't have to wait for the legal system um, to achieve those kinds of results. You know, a dam is a physical structure and as a physical structure, it can fall in the same way that other physical structures fall. Um, and, and at this, you know, as every, every day that passes really destruction is getting worse. Um, and so I would argue that we have a moral imperative, um, to, to do what needs to be done as quickly as possible. We, you know, we cannot wait for the legal system, um, to, to, to make the change that needs to be made. And, um, so I guess the obvious question is why would you, uh, why would you file a lawsuit if you don't think that the legal system is going to work? And I file, I helped to file that lawsuit because while you and I discussing this, understand what I've been talking about, the vast majority of the world, um, sees the legal system as the primary means for making change. And, Sometimes you have to you have to you have to use that to show people why it doesn't work. And, and I think you gain a measure of credibility to say, look, I've tried this way and I've gone through the process and I did it publicly and you can see what happened. And now when I say the legal system doesn't work, hopefully people people will listen to that um, a little bit more. Yeah, I think what you're doing is is a tactic and it's not an it's not a end in and of itself it is it's not like you're like oh well, it didn't work so i guess we're done we can't get the legal system behind us so i guess we'll just have to let it go it's like no this is one tactic we use to try to air uh our uh, grievance i guess that may be a weird way to say it but to <laughs> but to sort of highlight uh you know that the legal system itself doesn't serve us it doesn't serve the river it doesn't serve the uh the health of the land um, and the health of the ecosystems itself. So if that's a tactic in showing that this is a process, you know, this is showing that the legal system itself is illegitimate. And, um, and I, and I, I think that's great. I think it's great that you use that to prove a point. Obviously, if you could use the legal system to protect, um, these lands, that is great, but it's not at all surprising I think that that would not work, you know, that that would not achieve um, any sort of success in the sense that maybe you would you would perceive success as or we would perceive success as. Um, so I, I think that that's great. What, what was the results of that lawsuit or is that continuing um, to this day? No, no, we um, yeah, we, we filed it and. Um, the Colorado Attorney General, that was one of the named defendants. The Colorado Attorney General uh, threatened uh, the lead attorney in the case, uh, a Denver-based attorney named Jason Flores-Williams, uh, with what are called Rule 11 sanctions, um, basically accusing him of filing a lawsuit that he knew was frivolous and he shouldn't have done Um so they and as part of those sanctions, they threaten uh, disbarment, which means having your your license to practice law revoked uh, uh, and all kinds of um, money, money damages. And he uh, he operates a solo um, pro bono uh 
law firm. He, he mainly does most of his work for free. And looking at some of his other cases and some of his other clients, he decided that um, he, he the threat of sanctions was not something that sure. that he was willing to risk, and and he withdrew the case. Um, uh, there's there's a lot of lessons in that. You know, obviously, um, no good no good deed goes unpunished. Um, yeah. So. Well, I, I think your point that you made earlier, which is that a dam is a physical structure, and like all physical structures, like like a dam, it can be brought down. People can draw their conclusions from what that means. <laughs> we don't necessarily <laughs> have to say it explicitly, but anybody who's familiar with, um, well, there's a lot of people I could reference, but there's a lot of people who have written extensively about this and how... Uh, more direct action is very much required in addressing these concerns that we have about the health of the land, the health of the people, um, and the health of non-human life as well, uh, most importantly. So, um, again, I don't need to say explicitly what that means, but I think we can all we can all understand what that is uh, leading towards. Um, but again, because things are so, I, I would say, dire on this planet that we all share right now, uh, we need to step outside of these dominant structures that that seem to have such control over how people think of what's possible, including the legal system, including this this Western concept of rights. It's not about rights, and like yeah, I like how you pointed to responsibility. I think that's a very potent idea. If we can get people to understand what responsibility really means, um, then rights really don't. You know, it's a legal concept. We can get past that. If it is the, it, within the responsibilities of us to protect this land for future generations, to get that within our cultural values, uh, our, the values of our communities, um, then yeah, we, would, we wouldn't see any qualms with, with um, directly confronting uh, projects that are, that are seeking to undermine our, uh, our ability to even survive or to live well on this planet. And in the places that we live. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if the way I look at it is, um, if you, if you have the power to stop, uh, atrocity and you, instead of using that power, you appeal to someone else and, and try and beg them to use their power to stop the atrocity. I, I feel like you're only slightly less, uh, morally rep reprehensible than than the people that are actually committing the atrocity um, and and that and that it, it really is true we do have the power we have the physical means um, to stop atrocities um, it, it, a lot of times it looks it looks much more militant than what we're used to seeing um, but at this point with with how bad things are and um, it becoming almost unquestionable that if if drastic changes aren't made immediately, um, then then those who we do have a responsibility to, um, our children, our grandchildren, the the generations of of everyone that follows after us, um, you know, we 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 are morally reprehensible. We are we are guilty um, for letting this this continue. Um, and, you know, I always say you can you can ask someone else to do the right thing or you can just do the right thing yeah. yourself. <laughs> That's absolutely <laughs> correct. And and this is coming from a lawyer, everybody. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> no, I well, I, I think we 
we covered a lot of things and and I do really appreciate that you you know I, I just want to say this I I I, I'm currently hope, hoping I could, you know, you mentioned, uh, I think her name, Carla Tate, Dr. Carla Tate. I contacted her. Hopefully I can get an interview with her. She did have an excellent interview on Democracy Now! I'll provide a link to that interview down below. Um, so hopefully in the future I can get a hold of her and we can have a conversation. And she is, as you mentioned, she is a member of uh, that camp. Uh, and so the Wet'suwet'en people. So it is, uh, you know, in process, and I have other people that I'm trying to get that are, that are indigenous voices. I'm trying to to do that, but I do think, well, that it is important that someone like you, who is not again an indigenous person uh, to this land, uh, but you are very aware of these issues, these subjects. You have a personal experience and relationship with that camp that is incredibly valuable because, again, we need to. We need to find the commonality between all of us. We shouldn't be necessarily, you know, shitting on other people because you're like, oh, you're, you're, you're a settler or you're this. And it's important to recognize the historical context of where we come from. It's absolutely, absolutely necessary. Um, But I think we can all find a commonality in understanding how absolutely horrendous the situation is for these people. And in doing that, we can grow as individuals and as a collective, I think. Um, so I, I really thank you, Will, for your work. I thank you for your perspective and for speaking to me today. Yeah, it was it was an absolute pleasure. Um, yeah, doing a Stone Camp is a truly truly special place, and it needs it needs to be protected. Um, and I'm I'm deeply grateful for for uh, being given this platform to share some of my experiences uh, about a place that I love so deeply. So thank you very much. Of course. And I guess I should say this before we go, this would be good to give out some information. First off, Will, you have a website and that's willfalk.org. Last name is spelled F-A-L-K.org. Uh, all your work is there. You write some really beautiful poetry. Your writing is amazing. Um, you had a counterpunch article that came out as, as several years ago about your experiences at that camp. So I'm going to link people to that writing because you're an excellent writer. So um, I want to link people to that work. Um, but I also want to, of course, link people to the Unistoten Camp website, which is unistoten.camp, and that is spelled U-N-I-S-T-O-T-E-N dot camp. So people can go there, support the people there. You can donate directly to their to their project, uh, and, uh, and either do monthly. I think when I looked on there, I was looking at how to donate. You can do monthly donations or you can do a one-time donation. And of course you can get out in the street and you can start organizing as well. Uh, there's a lot of rallies that are going on right now and, and who knows what the future holds for these people. But I think that as, again, as we enter into, uh, kind of a new phase in this crisis, um, people are going to, hopefully their political imaginations will expand a bit further than, appealing to the state to withhold, you know, from, from doing what they're doing right now. So, uh, we'll see how that, that pans out, of course. Um, but again, Will, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. I I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Last Born in the Wilderness. Have a wonderful week. And as a psychedelic bard, Terrence McKenna said, take it easy, dude, but take it.